Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com Featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith Not just a profile picture For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com And the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website Is ready to help single Catholics take the next step In sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics Remember, CatholicSingles.com For faith, fellowship, and love Welcome to the Champions Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rubin and Coach Phil. The podcast where we share stories of faith being activated through sports. Welcome to the Champions Podcast, where we interview college, professional, and former professional athletes and coaches who share their faith journey. I'm Mike Rubin, and ladies and gentlemen, this is a special episode for a few reasons. Unfortunately, Coach Phil can't join us today, but we will have a Coach's Corner at the end of the show. Today is extremely special to me because filling in for Coach Phil is my incredibly beautiful and amazing wife, Shannon. Dear, how are you doing today? Well, I'm doing good. I have some very big shoes to fill here today, but I think I'm up for the challenge. You do have huge shoes to fill, and our listeners will leave reviews, and they'll let us know if you uh, accepted the challenge and prevailed. Yikes. (laughs) We are extremely excited about today's podcast. We have the pleasure of interviewing Mo Isom. Mo is a former LSU soccer star, a New York Times best-selling author. She travels the world speaking. She blogs, and she's a mom. Babe, you excited for today's interview? I'm super excited. Watching a couple videos on YouTube and hearing her uh, speak on some other things. Yes, I'm very excited to talk to her. Awesome. Well, she does it all, and I know that our listeners are really going to enjoy this one. So here's our interview. Okay, and we are so excited to have our guest on the line with us. We have Mo Isom. Mo, we are so honored and blessed to have you join us today. How are you doing? Thank you. This is a treat. I am, uh, I'm doing great. I'm nine months pregnant. I'm waddling (laughs) around. I'm uh, as as athletic as you can be at the moment, I guess. Um, But no, we're, we're doing awesome. Thanks for having me on. It's an absolute honor and a privilege. And you are our first soccer player. And we are really hoping you're not our first guest that goes into labor while on the podcast. And so, (laughs) uh, you know, I'll work on that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, your story is absolutely incredible and it's amazing. And I 100 percent know that God's going to use your testimony today to do the most incredible only God things in the hearts and lives of our listeners. And it's because of that, that if it's okay with you, we'd like to start the podcast in prayer uh, because we know we just need God's hand at work in all of this. Of course. Absolutely. All right. Father, we just come before you so thankful for today. We thank you so much for Mo and the testimony that she's about to share with us. God, we thank you for uh, giving us a testimony so that we can just brag on you and boast on the wonderful things that you do in our lives. We thank you that you use um, our story. We uh, thank you that you are a redeemer. God, you're the restorer. We thank you for uh, this life that you've given Mo in her 
uh, belly right now. And we just thank you, God, that uh, we know that you're going to use this testimony because you're faithful and good. God, we uh, give you this time today. Uh, We thank you for your presence with us. And uh, we just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Honestly, Mo, I don't know where to start. There's so many layers to your story, but here's what I know. Our audience is a lot of high school and college student athletes and coaches, and I believe that there are many that while it may not be identical to yours, they have stories uh, that when they hear yours, they'll say, that's me. And so a lot of our listeners uh, you know, may not have had the privilege of just to kind of know, you know your background and what you've been up to. So I'm just going to give a quick little bio of, of kind of what you've done. And we shared it at the beginning, but you're the author of two books, Wreck My Life, and Sex, Jesus, and the Conversations the Church Forgot. I read Wreck My Life. I haven't read the second one, the newest one yet. You are a New York Times best-selling author, might I add. Not just an author, but you are New York Times best-selling. You travel the world, and you speak and share your testimony. You're a blogger. You're an All-American goalkeeper at LSU. You're on SportsCenter's Top 10 plays for a 90-yard soccer goal. You've been on Ellen, ESPN, CBS, and a host of other places. And most importantly, you are a wife, a mother, and a daughter of God. That's an incredible resume right there. It's been a lot. It's a lot for 29 years. (laughs) (laughs) It has been uh, the greatest adventure. I mean, definitely with with some incredible, incredible highs and, um, you know, also just the reality of some, some really crushing lows. And it's been, um, I mean, the best word to put around it is adventure, but Mm. I love where God has us presently. I don't miss the fact that, you know, standing where we are right now, um, I can look back even 10 years ago. I mean, even less than that and would have never fathomed that this is where I would be. I mean, based on where I was then and where my heart was then and uh, my lack of faith then, I just think it's miraculous to, to just even get to stand in the present and see what God's done and how faithful he is. It, it helps you know that he's going to continue to be faithful when you can look back on, on his goodness and his kindness. So we're loving it. It's crazy. It's, um, you know, crazy to continue to move forward in uh, growing a family alongside it, but God's just good and we're just busy (laughs) but loving it (laughs) amen to that amen to that now so you know we read through your the you know just your your kind of your journey not your journey but just all the things that that you've done and I, i just as i was writing it and as i was you know just looking up i couldn't help but think what did the eight year old mo want to be when she grew up oh my goodness great question um for a while a vet a veterinarian. Uh, then for a little longer while, um, I wanted to be a whale trainer at SeaWorld. Oh, wow. <laughs> then for a little longer while, I wanted to be a, a professional soccer player and in the Olympics and, uh, you know, the World Cup medal around my neck. And um, it just, it bounced around. Eight-year-old Mo was a big dreamer and had a lot of things that excited her. And um, I mean, I still do today, but it was definitely that soccer dream that kind of started me down um, a path through my youth and then through school and obviously into college. And um, it was it was kind of chasing that dream that led the way for me athletically. That's fantastic. And I, I, you know, I I hope all of our listeners will just take a time and just go to YouTube. And, you know, I, I, one of the things that I really enjoy about you is you're extremely versatile, you know, so just if you YouTube uh, Mo Isom, I've gotten the plethora of you speaking at churches, 
um, your 90-yard soccer goal, which which honestly, it was like, I don't know if you remember, but in the mid-2000s, Powerade had these commercials where they had like Michael Vick, and he was throwing a football, and he would throw it so hard that he'd knock a player back five yards, or they'd show him yeah, throwing, yeah. and he'd throw it out of the stadium. And when I first saw your video, I'm like, is this a Powerade commercial? But it was actually <laughs> real life. It was real life. It was crazy. So that was my freshman that was my second game as a freshman at LSU. Wow. Um, and it was just a routine free kick. I mean, there'd been a handball or a foul maybe right outside of my box. Um, and so I, it was one of the reasons I was recruited was certainly for my leg strength. Um, and I, I guess I didn't know. I wasn't even aware it was that strong or that we put it on display that quickly. But <laughs> I just jogged up to take a routine free kick and it was a still night. It was just like perfect conditions and just struck the ball just right. And mm. it soared. I even watch the video sometimes and I'm like, <laughs> by the hammer of Thor, like how did that even happen? It, it just soared about 70 yards, took one bounce. And that poor other goalkeeper, mm. uh, she was coming out to defend my forward. She just misread it. I don't think anyone expected it to, to soar that far and took one bounce right over her head and, and the rest was history. You just hear the stands like erupt and yeah, ended up being 90 yards in totality. And it was, it, that, that was cool. That was a neat stamp freshman year where you're like, well, hello campus. <laughs> <laughs> What's my name? You know, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. And you know, I, I, I imagine that growing up as, you know, I think all athletes, their lives are defined by pressure. You know, they have the pressure that society puts on them to perform athletically. They have the pressure to for social, you know, socially. And then they've got the academic pressure. And I'm sure those are pressures that you went through. So what was the pressure like growing up? Where did it come from? And then how much more did it grow being a Division One athlete? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think it's something that's kind of knit into uh, – an athlete, a bit of the enjoyment of that pressure, which some people in life run from it. They don't want it, but there's a unique faction that kind of thrives on it. And, um, you know, from a young age, I, I enjoyed the pressure. I enjoyed, um, the, the competition. I was competitive and wanted to win and was just kind of driven in that way. And I think a lot of young athletes especially are, it's just kind of knit into you. Um, and so it can be beautiful. It can be a driving force that, you know, helps us succeed, helps us um, move to the next level, you know, can garner the scholarship, whatever it may be. But I, I, I certainly looking back, learned the hard way that it can also move to an unhealthy place if we don't keep it and carry it with wisdom and kind of keep perspective too, because for me, the thriving on that pressure really became kind of this perfectionism that owned me. And, you know, I looked around and there were so many people that um, it started in a healthy place, you know, a great pressure. You want to make your parents proud. You want to succeed. You want to, you know, move up through the ranks of the teams, but eventually it became like this kind of obsession with keeping everyone proud of me. And especially I think of my dad who was just kind of lived vicariously through my sport. And I just so wanted to make him proud. And again, that started in a great place, but then it moved to like every failure. I just beat myself up so hard, every loss, every weak goal I allowed. And I'd look to the sideline and his arms would be crossed and his jaw would be tightened. And it was like, 
this perfectionism that kind of took over in not wanting to fail and not wanting to let anyone down. And, um, you know, I, I just see it in a lot of young athletes. Now we have this great competitive, you know, pressure loving nature knit into us and it sets us apart. But if we're not careful, it can become a perfectionism that breeds anxiety, that breeds issues with our worth, with our value that sort of starts to lead us on this balance beam of like, keep balance and make sure you're good enough, you know, and, and, and that's what's measuring your worth and your value. And it's just, it's just not true, but it's certainly where it it kind of led me. And, um, it's, it's a tough place to be. Did you, were you able to identify it as the pressure at that age? Or is it now just looking back, you're like, man, that was a lot of pressure that I either was under or put myself under, or did you just kind of know it to be, this is just what's expected of me. And this is what I need to do. I think at the younger age, it was, it was really just the thought of this is the expectation, you know, and um, I, I don't, um, I, I kind of want to commend my parents in some ways or my dad in some ways, because I think every parent knows like, it's a part of our job stewarding these young lives of like helping them push themselves past their comfort zone, you know, and Absolutely. working hard. And what does it mean to really push yourself and have that intrinsic motivation to move to the next level? And so I think at the time I, I could appreciate it in a sense because it really is what caused me as goodness. I think I decided to be a full-time goalkeeper at 11 years old. And I immediately started, I would just make my dad bring me to the fields for the 18 and 19 year old boys goalkeeper training sessions. And I just started walking into them and, and then the coach would kick me out because I'm an 11 year old girl and <laughs> I'm trying to train with the, with the, you know, senior high school boys, but I just kept showing up and finally the coach let me stick around. And it was, I didn't want to be the biggest fish in the pond. I wanted to, you know, be really challenged and that's who I ended up training alongside. And so I think at the time it was sort of an appreciation of it, but I think over time, as I aged, um, as you know, you just become more complex in maturity and you start to see things from different angles and relationships kind of evolve and grow in different ways. I, I really started to resent it. Um, I started to resent the constant pressure because it felt like it overflowed into everything in life. It was like, if I played a poor game, I got the silent treatment from my dad for like multiple days. Mm. If I brought home a bad grade, it was, you know, it was such a pressure that wasn't continuing to be cultivated in like a healthy way. I started to get resentful of like, I just, apparently I'm just not good enough, you know? And um, so I think as I matured and as things Obviously, with my dad as well, there was a lot going on in his head and heart as well. I'm not saying every parent parents from that place, and he wasn't in a very healthy place, but I I grew kind of resentful of it. I then especially, I mean, a, a big piece of my testimony was after, um, you know, my freshman year of college, my, my dad very unexpectedly put a gun to his heart and pulled the trigger and suicide entered our story. And then you add this layer of like, oh, my love wasn't even good enough for this man to choose to stay around. And it's like, it it just over time grew from an appreciation of the pressure to a resentfulness of the pressure to the pressure just absolutely cracking and breaking my identity and my worth and my value. And 
Um, yeah, so it's an evolving process. And then now, you know, in a healed place after coming to know Jesus, after coming to know a perfect heavenly father and the healing that, that comes in that capacity, I can look back and see it. You know, hindsight's kind of 2020. Um, I can look back and see sort of the arc of that. But the day-to-day living of it was hard. And there's just a lot of young people, young athletes, who are navigating through it, and it's hard. And I would encourage anyone listening to think about and weigh where they stand and if they can appreciate the pressure for what it is doing and pressing coal into a diamond and kind of pushing and refining us, or if they're at a place where they're actually resentful of and worn out and, you know, not thriving, but actually struggling as a result. And I think it's important that we kind of self-assess there and we step back and we look at the big picture so we don't grow to a place where the pressure breaks us. That's so good. That's so good. And I think so many people listening, athletes, non-athletes, I mean, I think you just spoke to them. You know, I think what you just shared just kind of ministered to their heart. And uh, I don't want to take for granted that um, our listeners kind of know your background and know your story. And so for as much as you'd kind of be willing and able, would you just kind of take us into your freshman year? I mean, we did talk about the 90-yard goal. And so, you know, the the highlights of that and, you know, just kind of coming into an SEC school, uh, being the starting goalkeeper your freshman year. I mean, that's an incredible honor, you know. And so there's that high of highs. And then would you just kind of walk us through um, the, the winter into into January? Yeah, it was, um, it was freshman year was one of those year of great polar like opposites. It was, I think probably many of us have navigated through those seasons where the highs are so high. I'm a freshman at LSU at this huge division one university. I mean, any resource, any gear, any facility you could dream of, you have right at your fingertips. I'm like navigating newly in college on a scholarship. It just have this amazing freshman year performance-wise, sports-wise, again, the 90-yard goal. I think the end of that year, I was Louisiana Freshman of the Year and named All-American and just all of these different accolades and awards. It, It felt like this year of tremendous highs. And then went home for winter break. Um... And, you know, after this freshman season with just my head in the clouds, honestly, I was like on the mountaintop. And one night my dad didn't come home and the hours are passing and our angst is kind of rising and we're confused because this is a man who's just a family man through and through. And yes, certainly put a lot of pressure on us, but his family was also his greatest delight. He was always present. You know, it was never the struggle with the father not being there. It was the struggle with like the dad being there too much. So it was it was weird, you know, and one night he doesn't come home and we found a love note written by the phone and his cell phone was off and we're hearing a voicemail. He left that sounded like my father, but it wasn't my daddy's voice. It was very scared and empty and just said he needed to drive around and clear his head and that he loved us. And, you know, we kind of are getting a feel for what's going on on the back end. I guess there had been some financial issues that had come to light. And, you know, my, my mom had um, met with my dad and, and asked what was going on here. And, and then after that meeting, just we hadn't seen him again. And so it, I think in that place, I was thinking, 
my greatest fear was like, is my dad going to go to jail? Like, is this financial problems that could like, is this going to shift our lives here? Yeah. And where's he going? And why is he running? And it's just scary. It was just one of those times we fell asleep that night. And I'm sure everyone's known this, but you just don't even know what to pray. Mm. You, the situation seems too confusing, too messy, too big. You're just like, I don't, I don't know. I've been on, I've been on the top of the world. I've been on cloud nine and suddenly this is just blindsiding me. And, um, yeah, we, we woke up that next morning to my mom, just screaming, sprinting up the stairs, the sheet of paper, just crackling in her hand. And we start speeding around town and trying to find any place that he may be. And I'm begging my mom to see this paper. And she finally shoved it into the back seat. And she's like, here, read this and then please help me. Mm. And I ironed it out and it was a printed email um, that was a suicide letter from my dad. He had just summarized his life in four little paragraphs. And now we were trying to really find him before he gave up. And he, we didn't, we couldn't, we ended up at his office with noise and commotion and police and chaos. And then everything went silent. And, um, you know, they, they walked in and told us that they had found my dad's remains. And, and that was when everything just, you want to talk about polar opposites. You go from the mountaintop to literally a nosedive into the Valley. I mean, it was, unfathomable, numbing, confusing, the greatest grief I'd ever known. I mean, we went from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, like a train hit us. And um, it just, it it changed everything. It changed things mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically. I mean, I had to go back to LSU just a couple weeks after looking at my dad's body you know, on a morgue table with a bullet hole in his heart. And I'm having to go back to this campus that I had just left as this star athlete who everyone is, you know, the 90 yard goal girl. I mean, after having left on the mountaintop, I'm like crawling back as wounded as I had been. And um, it just, it became a really messy and rough road from that point forward because I didn't want at that point anything to do with God. I didn't think God was good. I didn't think that he loved me. I didn't think my dad loved me. I didn't say it was like every bit of anger, resentment, frustration, fear you could harbor. I just carried around like a, like a chain around my neck. It was really a dark time. Leading prior to that, did you Mm -hmm. grow up in the church? I mean, did you have a strong relationship with God growing up? I would say it was a faith, really, I call it a faith by inheritance. It was like I knew a lot about God. I could have told you a lot about God. I was raised in a Christian home, but it was sort of that, like, I'm a Christian because my parents are Christians. I'm in church because my parents are in church. You know, it was this faith by inheritance of, oh, this is what we do. I'm from Georgia. We're in the Bible Belt. This is normal. I knew a lot about it all, but I could look around and see that others obviously understood it differently than I did, but I chalked it up to them just like being more enthusiastic. (laughs) (laughs) They just, you know, they just cared more about it, I guess. For me, it was like God in a box, you know, that's a Sunday thing, church on a checklist, a cross Mm. on my necklace. I could say the right stuff. Yeah. Um, But it wasn't, for me personally, it wasn't an active relationship with God where that was what I was depending on Monday through Saturday as well, where that is the word, you know, that I was reading regularly where 
it was an obedience compelled for me, you know, any of the above. It was just really sort of that cultural Christianity. And so that sustains you just fine when you're upper middle class and life's not all that hard. Right. Uh, it'll leave you completely blindsided when real life happens and life suddenly gets hard and you're standing on sand instead of a rock mm. because you never paid it a ton of mind. Wow. And that was sort of the place that I found myself. It's kind of been that roller coaster, like God's good when things are great and oh, I don't need God when things are bad. You know, it's just Absolutely. sort of that cultural hmm cultural deal we walk in. I could tweet a mean Bible verse, you know, <laughs> like, can we not all, but Absolutely. Uh, it wasn't really a walk. So was there any point of view that at any part of you that didn't want to go back to LSU? Oh yeah. My mom had to like make me, <laughs> I, I really did wrestle with, um, Hey, I know I've lived literally my whole life playing this sport to and that it's gotten me to scholarship and that I'm getting an education as a result. But like, do I need to stay home and take care of my mom and take care of my sister? Like it, I was, was on the verge of giving it all up to, to take care of my family. I mean, it was so blindsided and everyone was hurting. And so I definitely wrestled with that of like, what do I even, what I'm supposed to go back and act like, act like everything's fine. Like I, I'm about to go eight hours away from all of my people mm. who are really wounded. I, it was a, it was a tough thing, but ultimately my mom really pressed on me of what your father would want you to do and hope that you did, you know, and, and I'm sure never intended to sabotage would be your future and, you know, your, your education and um, your athletics and all that he poured so much into. And so would you honor him in going back and, you know, finishing strong, finishing, I say it was freshman year. I still had a lot, a lot to head, but it was, she really talked me into it. And I, I agreed, you know, big picture that was probably best. And so continued on. I mean, back and, at school. and that's an amazing place for your mom to be at so soon right, right after, you know what I mean? Just hearing you say the words that she said, I'm thinking, man, here, she just lost her husband and now her, you know, daughter, not that she's losing you, but you're leaving and she's just in this mental state where she's God's given her this clarity, you know, and, and just right. to say, hey, this is man, that's that that's powerful. Now, how you had mentioned at one point in time that when you I, I forget if it was heard the voicemail or read the letter that you're like, that's not my daddy. You know, uh, how yeah. how did you you know, after this all happens, how did you you process all of the emotions that one feels in this, you know, because I'm sure there's just you're grieving, you're angry, you're you're, you're everything, you're everything. And so yeah. how long of a process was that take? Did that take? How did you navigate through that? Who were important people that came alongside of you that just kind of helped guide and direct you and through this? Yeah, um, it's a great question. It it really, the grief process, I think no matter how we lose someone, you know, it looks a little different based on the circumstances and whether something was abrupt or whether it was a long time coming, you know, or a cancer diagnosis versus a suicide. It's like, I think the grief process of loss can detail itself out in unique ways, but in the big picture, it's grief. And and the way our hearts, our minds, our spirits move through it is um, can be pretty universal. There's the there's the phase of just numb, like you just can't in denial, like you can't wrap your head around it. You just can't 
process it. And so I certainly moved through that. Um, and then there was the phase of, of anger, of, of resentfulness of, I was mad. I was truly mad that this had occurred. I was mad at God. I was mad at my dad. I was mad at anyone who had played a part in his life, you know, negatively. I was mad at myself for the ways that I, you know, hadn't honored him, that I had argued with him, that I had, you know, you just start reflecting on everything and you're just mad. And then for me, it moved to true like sorrow too. I was deeply, deeply sad. Um, And it was interesting because I, you know, like I said, I had to go back to LSU about two weeks later. Um, and, And the staff there being a collegiate athlete, I think changed the game for me because if I had been a regular student going back to school, I honestly, I'm not, I don't know what resources would have been available or Mm -hmm. how I would have had to track them down. Or I just literally don't know that, that process for a regular student. But for me as a collegiate athlete, I mean, I stepped back on campus and my coaches were like, we've, we've set up your, um, your first meeting with a grief counselor that we have here on campus. You know, it's like they, they just pulled out all the stops to welcome me back graciously and to help me. And um, I remember even my coach told me, you know, no matter how many practices I needed to take off, I, I could take all the time I needed. And, and we talk about being driven and the pressure and like the perfectionism. I missed one practice wow. and then I stayed after the next practice and ran sprints on my own to make up for missing the first oh practice. No one word. had told me to do that. I was like, I didn't want to get behind. Wow. I felt so stunted and everything else. It was like sports could be that one thing maybe that I could just keep up with, you know, and, um, but they got me with a grief counselor and she was tremendous. I think it's really helpful when we're going through hard stuff to have someone to listen, mm. to hear you and yes, to offer help and counsel back, but more so than anything, her name was Brenda. The, the greatest way that she served me is she just heard me. I would, she would just cue a question and let me process and share. And, um, it really helps to have listening ears when you're hurting because I think a lot of people in the grief process young and old it it feels like right away everyone cares and everyone is right by your side and your fridge can't even hold the amount of food people bring and it's like (laughs) everyone seems very attentive to your wound but the reality is that then life keeps going and people have lives and you know the the attention kind of dwindles the the care kind of dwindles and you hear from people less and less and it feels like the world keeps spinning but yours can't Mm. like it feels you you feel so stuck and you feel like does no one see me anymore and even if they did I don't want to be a burden you know it's like just just really hard to move through grief alone um and so I think it's really helpful when you have someone that can consistently keep coming back and that you regularly can process with as you you know move through and so that was a great benefit. I'll also say, I mean, she was a, a medical individual. And so, so I started on um, an antidepressant medicine, which for me personally, and I know these things serve different people in different ways, but for me personally, I never, it almost felt like um, a way to treat a symptom, but it was never really bringing much 
cure. It, it never did for me the fullness of what I hoped it could do. And I, I took it probably for around a year, but it wasn't until I came to know Jesus in a really radical way as well. Another huge life circumstance, but where I truly came to know Jesus that I realized, oh, for my my full healing, I need to know the healer. Mm. There's a healer Amen. who doesn't just treat my symptoms, but he he revives my heart. And so um, I that was more short lived, you know, that that element of the healing process for me, because I I really didn't want to be dependent on anything other than the spirit of God when I came to know how powerful and how incredible that spirit of God really was and that he was a healer and yeah. a deliverer and a comforter, you know, and all of the above. So those were kind of some big chunks, I guess, in my process of grief that were significant. But I would encourage anyone, certainly at the bare minimum, to find someone that they can share with and that can listen, because that was the most profound um, part, I guess, of my, pro- of my healing process in the beginning. And then was there ever, you know, because soccer was such that intimate thing between you and you and your, your dad, was there ever a thought, like, was soccer a reprieve or was it a reminder? That's a great question. It, it was a little bit of both and it was confusing, honestly, and, and amazing. And it was like that release where I could get on the field and play and not have to think about life for a little bit because you just, you're back in what your muscle memory knows, you know, it's like, this is what I've always done. This has been my joy. It's been like, you know, how I get my energy out. It's like in one way it served me so well, but in another way it was a constant reminder because I'd look up and my dad wasn't in the stands, you know, it's like grief hits you at weird times. Mm. So in some ways it was this motivation of like, Hey, this is what I did and loved with my dad. And then, then it'd come in a wave of like, Oh, this is really hard because he's not here, you know? And so that was a little bit of a mix that kind of came in waves, I would say, but I did still love the sport and I was still, I, it's in your, it's in your bones when when you've played something that long. It's like, even with the waves of hard stuff, there's a bit of that, like, this is good, you know, and this is helpful. And so I, I still enjoyed continuing to play even in the times where it was tough. And then was there, did you put more pressure on yourself to play and kind of perform to honor him? Or was there kind of this freedom because now you're realized you're coming from it, you're coming at it from a standpoint where you're like, this is just a game at the end of the day, a game that I love and a game I want to excel in. But at the end of the day, it's a game. Or did you feel that, you know, additional pressure to just kind of continue performing? I think it was more more of the shift in my performance came about a year after his loss a year a year into playing again where really again there's so much life happening you're just seeing it more as a reprieve like I wasn't really putting too much deep thought into soccer I guess other than that it was the sport I was playing it the more profound shift with my sport and the pressure and the performance came when I came to know Christ mm. because suddenly I someone had shared with me the simple phrase of play for an audience of one play for an audience of one. God is the one who's knit these gifts into you, these talents. He's the one that's given you this opportunity to compete. He's the one who 
literally, I mean, the fraction of people who play, you know, a sport at any level, much less a division one level, you know, much less all of the different neat circumstances that surround it. It's so small. And, and it was really this realization when I came to know Jesus of, oh, I, I have no other pressure really in this than to delight in the gift that God has given me and um, to enjoy what I'm able to do. And yeah, certainly the loss of my dad, it puts life into perspective. It's like, wow, this at the end of the day is a game and it's not make or break. (laughs) But there was also the beautiful layer of like, it's a game I'm, I'm being gifted to even get to play. And I don't have to prove anything to anyone because I know the father, the father who knit these gifts into me is well pleased. And so it, um, it shifted for me tremendously in my sport um, after coming to know Jesus, just because my sport was no longer my identity definer. It was a, a, a gift I got to delight in, but it didn't define who I was or what my worth was. I hope every student athlete just kind of heard what you just said, because I think that that, that should minister to their heart. And um, I do want to get into kind of that part where you um, came to know the Lord and everything. But um, I think we have a question first. Hold on. Yeah. <laughs> so uh-huh. I, you know, I hear you talk about growing up in a Christian home and this faith by inheritance. And so I'm just curious. um what was the moment like when you actually met Jesus for yourself? You know, cause I, I can identify with that, you know, growing up in a Christian home and, Oh, well we go to church because that's what we do on Sundays, you know? And, um, right. I know a lot about God, you know, but what was that moment like when you actually met Jesus and you're like, wow, like I, I'm in this, I'm in this for real. Guys, this has been a phenomenal podcast so far and I hope you've been enjoying it. We're going to stop it right here and divide it into two parts because Mo's story is so incredible, and there's so many different layers to it that if we didn't, it would be about an hour and a half podcast, an hour and 45-minute podcast. So we're going to have part one today, and then if you tune in or check back next week, we're going to have part two where Mo answers Shannon's question about what was that moment like when you met Jesus, when you uh, encountered him, when you uh, felt his presence for the first time. And it is a powerful answer that you are not going to want to miss. It's just another incredible layer to Mo's story. And so we're so thankful for her for taking the time. It was a very long podcast, and uh, I'm trusting that God is going to use it to uh, give himself the glory capture the hearts of you guys, the listeners, and just let you see all that is possible through a relationship with him. Until next time. This is international Catholic singer Anna Nuzzo inviting you to join me and Father Dan Cambra of the Marian Fathers on a select international tours Divine Mercy pilgrimage to Poland and the Czech Republic. It takes place in September of 2019 and we would love for you to join us. For more information, go to my website, annanuzzo.com. 
Thank you and God bless. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com.